Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, walking through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes. And here the guys will be in chapter 13, looking at the world of Noah. We wanted to let you know about an upcoming Theopolis workshop. These are online courses that we run for two hours a week for six weeks. We have one coming up from February 18 through March 25th with Peter Lightheart that is titled The Death and Resurrection of David. This class is going to be in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles with Lightheart, and we only have 10 spots available. Registration is now open, so if you are interested, move quick, as these spots will soon be filled up. There's a link to register for this class in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts, discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is a regular on the podcast, is at a presbytery meeting this morning, so he's being a good churchman and participating in his presbytery meeting and isn't able to join us for the recording. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out, taking out all of the coughs and hiccups and that cloud up the uh, recording and uh, we'll be delivering it to you. We're in the middle of a series of studies in James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World. This is a critical book for a number of us. It's a book that's shaped the way I think about the Bible more profoundly than any other book I've read. It's a book that shaped the way I prepare for teaching and preaching, the way I preach and teach. Specific things from Through New Eyes have uh, become really crucial for the way I understand scripture and history and everything else. So uh, we wanted to take some time to discuss it together and and to introduce it uh, to those of you who don't know the book. And uh, we've been doing that for a number of weeks now. And uh, this week, we're getting to the fourth part of the book called The Movement of History. Jim starts out with a theology of symbolism. He discusses what he calls the furniture of the world, the way that different created items symbolize God and how they mutually symbolize one another. He talks about the original state of the creation, the world of the creation. And then the rest of the book is going to be a series of chapters that focus on particular phases of biblical history. If you use the traditional Reformed understanding, you'd be looking at a series of different covenant orders. So he's going to, we're going to talk about the world of Noah in this episode. We're going to talk about the world of the patriarchs in the next episode, uh, the world of uh, Moses and the, and the tabernacle move into the the monarchy and so on. But each chapter is dealing with some particular phase of biblical history. And of course, Jim is looking for recurring patterns of God's actions, uh, recurring symbols. He's focusing on the way that uh, names change. Uh, the name of God is uh, different names of God are highlighted in each different covenant order, in each successive covenant order. Israel is given new names. The people of God are given new names over the course of history. Uh, and he's looking at uh, the uh, looking at that sequence and, and highlighting those things that are characteristic of a particular phase. And I think one of the things that re- that's a real strong point of this book, Jim is working within a Reformed Covenant framework, but he's he recognizes the discontinuity between these various covenants. 
sometimes Reformed Covenant theology puts so much emphasis on the continuity between the various covenants, the continuity between the Old and the New Covenant, that it misses some of the crucial discontinuities. And Jim is very attentive to those. And that helps us, uh, him to show and us to see how the Bible moves through series of formations, deformations, declines, judgments, and then recreations. And that, that pattern is recurring again and again. And it also helps to see that there's a, a pattern of a movement from glory to glory as you move through these various covenant orders, that you're not just, it's not just a steady state. There are certainly things in common between the world of Abraham and the world of Moses, but there are also significant things that are different. Uh, and we have to attend to those as well as to the things that are similar. And one of the things that comes out of this, I just, uh, one other comment I'll make as we begin. I think one of the, one of the things that uh, is highlighted by the way that Jim puts these pieces together is the significance of eschatology, uh, eschatology not merely as the theology of the end, but the theology of endings, plural, and the theology of time and history and how, how history is shaped. And because Jim is looking at each of these covenant orders, looking at its formation, its flourishing, its corruption by some kind of fall, its decline, the judgment that takes away, he's constantly looking at beginnings and endings. That's that's a, a key thing that he's looking at through the course of the book. So as the the world of the original creation declines toward the flood, then you have this catastrophic event, but then a new creation emerges from that. So you have a kind of eschatological event, an ending of a world, of a geopolitical order, of a symbolic order. Uh, in the case of the flood, you have the, the uh, collapse of a physical order and then a renewal of the physical order. But something like that happens each time. It's as if there's a flood at, at, the, at the close of each of these great uh, of these uh, each of these great uh, covenant uh, covenant sequences, covenant uh, uh, orders, and uh, looking ahead, uh, Jim doesn't make much of this in 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 this particular chapter in chapter thirteen. But looking ahead, I think this is the reason why the Olivet Discourse, AD seventy, the Judgment on Jerusalem looms so large in the New Testament. Uh, but sometimes that seems like an oddity to Christians. Why would you put so much emphasis on that historical event when the Romans are taking over Judea, destroying Jerusalem, destroying Jerusalem temple. Why is that seen as a significant event for biblical history? But when you see it in the the light of this sequence of covenant orders, each of which ends with some kind of catastrophic judgment and catastrophic closing, some kind of eschatological event, some kind of anticipation of the last judgment, when you see that that pattern recurs again and again throughout the Old Testament, then it's not... Uh, it's not surprising that when the end comes, when the end of the old world comes and a new world, a new creation comes into being through Jesus' death and resurrection, that something similar is happening and that there's this geo- geopolitical uh, that shake up that accompanies the end of this uh, of this particular of this particular order. I think more broadly, you can see how this affects the way we understand what Jesus is up to because Jesus enters the scene as uh, this. Uh, this order is fraying and decaying. He enters the scene as a prophet of judgment. Uh, his first words are about the kingdom of God coming and the need to repent because the ax is always already laid at the foot of the tree. He picks up the, the message of John, John the Baptist. So Jesus is the, a prophet who's announcing the end of this old order and also the beginning of a new order. And you can see the pieces of Jesus' ministry fitting into that broader framework. But it really enhances your understanding of the Gospels and the significance of 
the ending that the Gospels announce when you see it in the light of this this uh, continual cycle or spiral of events that we have in the Old Testament. Something which occurred to me as I was going through this chapter, and I'd, I'd like to know kind of how you um, how you process it um, both yourselves is this slight tension between um, the progression and the kind of upward trend of things versus this notion of decline. So um, uh, it it seems to me that within, okay, it seems to me that in Jim's view of world history, there are successive ages and each one of them can happily decline. And so from Adam, there can be a decline kind of downwards towards the time of the flood. And yet then with the uh, inaugurate, inaugurate, uh, whatever the word is, the start of Noah's age, there is um, obviously a new beginning. And in in some ways, it seems like Jim wants to say that that's a better beginning and like an advance from Adam's time. And similarly, that kind of Abraham's call will be an advance from Noah's time. Although I suppose Noah's world was a step down from Adam's world in in some senses but there there seems to be this um uh kind of slight um uh tension that jim is seeking to balance between a moving forward um and yet decline in in some senses so i'd like to know how you uh put that all together one way to think about it perhaps is just in terms of human growth we go through various phases in our life and those phases can involve decline and a certain development in vices and sins, even though in another respect we are growing up. So if you think about a child going through the different phases of childhood into young adulthood and then into their um, into middle age and then into old age, there are progressions taking place there in different levels of human life. And yet at the same time, those progressions can be characterized by a gradual descent into certain sorts of vices. So progressions can be occurring on one level and decline within those sorts of progression. Now, when we're talking about the pattern of history, we can see ways in which there is this decline and development of sin. Um, When we're talking about the work of Christ, there's something about, for instance, a post-millennial view of history. There's not just this is the way history has always been. Um, The work of Christ changes something of the impetus of history so that history is not always um, characterized by the same form of decline that once um, doomed it in many respects. Now, as we go through the story of scripture, you can see progressions from glory to glory in certain respects. And yet every single one of these ages, as you note, can be characterized as a sort of ferment that is often involving um, growing sins followed by judgment and catastrophe. And so the question of how do we relate these earlier ages of history prior to the advent of Christ to what it means for history to be moving towards the eschaton after the advent of Christ. It's an interesting question to reflect upon because often I think there can be a danger of um, seeing a sort of post-millennial flavor of history 
as just that's the way history has always been. And yet I think there's something about Christ's advent that changes the impetus of history, that history is not just a matter of things growing old and waxing and, and, and waning, but there can be a waxing of the kingdom as a result of Christ's coming and the gift of his spirit, which gives new life. And so the sorts of declines that we see in the world of Eden to Noah, to the collapse of the kingdom, for instance, and the, its separation to the period of the exile and other things like that. I'm not sure we should see that sort of pattern that we see in the Old Testament as one that is just the general pattern of history, nor should we see the more post-millennial flavor of history that is brought in by the work of Christ and the gift of his spirit as one that we straightforwardly read back onto the pages of the Old Testament. But I'd be very interested to hear Peter's thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I think that um, within the context of the book, I think it's important to go back to where he Jim first introduces this pattern. And he's getting this sequence from the creation account. So God creates a world that's formless and void. He begins to form it, but the way he forms it in Jim's terms is by taking hold of it, rearranging it, restructuring it, which includes separations and divisions, and then giving things new names, giving things new tasks. And so that, that's built into the way the world works, as it were. The first six days of history follow something like this structure. And as Jim points out, each day is enhanced over the previous day. Something new has come into being and something better. The world has gotten better so that God can say, uh, Elohim can say at the end of the whole sequence, uh, creation is very good. All things are very good. So there's something in the something in the, I guess in the in the uh, dynamics, the hard the hard wiring of creation that uh, functions this way. Jim also points to the fact that the Eucharistic rite follows the same kind of sequence. Jesus takes hold of the bread, he breaks the bread, he gives thanks, and then he breaks the bread, and then he distributes the bread. He renames the bread. His disciples receive it and enjoy it. So there's a I think there's, you're just talking about a deep structure of the way God works. And if I were to speculate on how to how to think about this, you know, wh why do things work that way? Uh, I'd be moving into Trinitarian theology. That would be my default. Uh, and to think about Trinitarian life as a life of continuous self-giving of the three persons to one another and mutual glorification. The Son does all that He does to glorify the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son through the Spirit. And so there's this. And it's not it's not death and resurrection in a strict sense, but there's this kind of subordination for glorification that's just part of the life of God that seems to be imprinted at a deep level in in the way the Bible talks about creation. Yeah, and and as Alistair said, you see that in you see that in the way that it, uh, that the way that uh, human beings develop and grow. Uh, Jim points that out in uh, particularly in his book um, from Bread to Wine that. Individual biographies follow something like the same pattern, that there's this, there's endings, and there's always endings and new beginnings. You end one phase of life, and you begin a new phase of life. Uh, and that uh, you have that same kind of pattern at the macroscopic level, as well as the microscopic level. One of the things that I um, highlighted from this particular chapter, chapter 13, is the way that uh, Jim describes the arc. And I had remembered part of it by from previous readings of the book that the ark is a kind of cosmic model. Uh, the world is created as an 
as a uh, three-story universe. There's heavens above, earth beneath, and waters under the earth. The visible universe is like that. And the spiritual universe, the invisible universe, or when we include the invisible universe, we include a higher heaven that's invisible to us and an abyss that's uh, also invisible to us. Uh, the Ark also has this kind of three three-story structure that uh, gives it so that it resembles this the three-story structure of the cosmos. But I, I had forgotten some of the ways that Jim fills that out. Uh, he cites Meredith Klein a couple of times, and Klein points out that the windows, the window of the Ark corresponds to the windows of heaven. So the upper story has uh, a some kind of correspondence to to this to the sky. The door of the ark is on the lower part of the ark, corresponding to the sea and the doors of the sea, the doors of the deep that are opened so that the uh, so that the the waters flow up. Waters are not only coming down from above, but also flowing up from below. So you have other details of the ark that uh, bring out this resemblance to uh, and this analogy with the creation. Yeah, I was very interested in the bit that um, Jim quoted from um, Meredith Klein, where he says, um, uh, the ark, however seaworthy, was ultimately fashioned like a house rather than a sailing vessel. All the features mentioned in the description of the ark belong to the architecture of a house, the stories, the door, the window. And, and that just, I said a little point, but it's just one of these things that kind of made a lot of sense to me. And I find it very easy just to gloss over. I mean, this is one of the things, isn't it, as a Christian, if, if you've grown up reading scripture, you're used to just talking about an ark with a window and a door because you, you've always read it and you don't kind of pause and think, well, hang on, hang on. Like, you know, th this is quite house-like um, language. And yeah, I, I found that a helpful um, observation about, about the ark. Yeah, and, and another thing that uh, Jim points out is, I mean, you have the the three stories that are the three stories of the cosmos, but also those associated numerically, at least, with the categories of animals that Noah gathers. There's no indication, explicit indication, that birds are in the upper story and crawling things are in the lower story of the ark. But at least you have this numerical structural kind of analogy between not just between the the physical structure of the cosmos, but between different categories of creatures. One thing I noticed recently looking through the dimensions of the ark and trying to relate them to other things within scripture is that each floor of the ark is like three um, tabernacle courtyards laid end to end, but also the whole um, one level of the ark could fit 50 tabernacle buildings all connected together. So it seemed certainly 50 is a very significant number within scripture and it seems that we're supposed to pay attention to these numbers not merely as um the description of the dimensions of a seaworthy vessel but the significance of those numbers points towards something of the meaning of this vessel that it is uh, something similar to the um, tabernacle to the it's connected to things like the ark of the covenant um, it's a different word in the text, but elsewhere we see the same term being used outside of the biblical text. You can think about the way that this is a wooden chest, as it were, that's covered with inglorious substance with this pitch. And then the Ark of the Covenant is again a wooden chest with the dimensions given to us, which is covered with the glorious substance of gold. And so given the dimensions 
given the connections with these other things, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle courtyard, the tabernacle itself, we can begin to come to an understanding of what this might actually mean and the significance of this as a sort of seed of a new world. Yeah, the fact that uh, there are dimensions given at all is, an, is a pointer in that direction. Uh, Jim, Jim makes this point that uh, it's only consecrated spaces that are measured out um, and given, given dimensions. This is the first time we have any kind of measured space. And the next time we'll have measured spaces with the tabernacle, and then we have it with the temple. Ezekiel's temple, of course, has it at length, and then we have um, dimensions given of the New Jerusalem at the end of the uh, end of Revelation, uh, and the the Ark is the predecessor of all those. So it's it's a cosmic model. It's resembling the three story universe, but the fact that it's given specific dimensions points to a a, a kind of different thread of that. That this is a uh, as uh, Michael Morales calls it, the, the tabernacle prefigured. So those three things are go together. That is. You have a specific constructed environment, the Ark. It is a world model. It's a microcosm of the macrocosmic world. And it's also, in some fashion, uh, at least pointing to and figuring the sanctified spaces. Uh, that's, what, that's what all the sanctuaries are. All the sanctuaries are constructed things that are in the earth, but uh, thing, con- constructed, constructed houses that are intended to be world models and, and microcosms. I mean, Jim, Jim makes a Jim make, also makes a comment that uh, the the ark obviously is built from wood, and that picks up from the beginning of the uh, beginning of the Bible, from the early chapters of Genesis, where you have trees that are planted in the garden. You have Adam in the garden. Adam has animals in the garden, but then you have this. All the elements of that scene are transferred or tra- uh, transmuted into the ark. the The wood of the trees of the world are put are made into an ark. Uh, that resembles a house. Noah is the new Adam who's in in the ark. He's ruling over the animals that are inside the ark. So uh, you have a a garden-like environment, a transformed garden-like environment inside the ark, as well as this uh, macrocosmic model. Might also think of it as the ark as a macrocosm of Noah. Um, The fact that Noah is said to have lived 300 years and 50 years after the event of the flood suggests some sort of affinity between Noah himself and the ark, which has the dimensions of 300 cubits by 50 cubits. And I wonder whether we're supposed to reflect upon the significance of that um, association and analogy. Peter, just going back to your point, you mentioned that Jim... uh connected these new ages with um, things which are specifically measured, um, things in cubits often. And so obviously he mentions Noah, he then goes on to mention the tabernacle, the uh, temple, Ezekiel's temple he mentions as as well, and so on, and and Revelation, obviously. And it strikes me that we can make the same um, point in terms of time. Um, I, I may have said this previously on these podcasts, but it strikes me as a remarkable thing that if we think of what events in scripture we can pin down to specific days, um, we can't pin down to a specific day, you know, the reign of any king, the inauguration of any king, any battle, anything like that, things that we might think are like major events, the enthronement of Solomon, David, Rehoboam, whoever, you know, um, and yet all sorts of things around the temple we, we can 
pin down to those sorts of things and uh, pin down to days, the movement of the arc. I, I've got a list of them somewhere and I, I've shown, or I think I've shown, um, that every reference to a day can be connected back to um, either the priest or the arc, uh, either the arc or the temple or a priest. Um, so Ezekiel writing or Jeremiah writing about events around the sanctuary. And it seems that then that's true of Noah as well, in that when we get all these cubit measurements coming up in Noah's story, they're accompanied by very specific uh, references to time. And it does seem then that these sanctuary-like things in scripture are kind of, yeah, they're, they're inaugurating uh, ages and, and so on, but they're almost kind of dictating um, uh, the flow of time in 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 some way just as the temple would kind of keep a calendar and announce events and feasts and so on there, there seems to be something um i can't quite grasp that's significant about all that maybe the analogy is you have measured spaces holy space measured time at least in certain places it can be holy time like the like the uh measured time of the of the uh, liturgical calendar for example i think one example of this um feature can be seen in the parallel between Genesis chapter 8, verse 13, and Exodus 40. So in the six, 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And then in Exodus chapter 40, it says from verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. So in the second, beginning of the second year of the flood, there is this removing of the covering. In the beginning, first day of the second year of the exodus, there is the placing of the covering. And it seems to me that those references are not accidental, that we should see some sort of um, association and maybe to an extent an inversion here. And as we go through the story of the Exodus, I think that's supported by the many different analogies between the two stories. Seven days preparation, 40 days ascending on the waters. Seven days preparation, 40 days ascending on the mountain. Or we might think about the ways in which the parallels between the Ark of the Covenant and then the Ark as these two wooden boxes, one overlain with um, pitch, one overlain with gold, and then the specific measurements that are given to us, the way in which Moses is almost offered the opportunity to be a Noah figure, destroy the rest of the people, and the Lord will form a new people with him. And so there is a sort of flood event, the seed of a new world, and this event is maybe in some respects an inverse of what's taking place in the story of Noah, that in the story of Noah there's this reversion of the world to its original state being covered with the waters. It's the world as God's realm that is just inhospitable to man, there's no longer a, a habitation for man. And then in the story of the Exodus, the ark is no longer a habitation for man so much as the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, it's forming a habitation for God in the midst of his people in a world that's 
in many ways um, overwhelmed by sin, flooded by sin. And so there's an inversion of what's taking place in the flood, but also all these associations. And so as we're reading through and paying attention to the dates, to the measurements, to the ways that this is described as a sort of holy space and a world model, we're seeing deeper insights into the movement of the narrative more generally and the way in which the story of the Exodus is a fuller um, answer to the problem of human sin than the flood could provide. Yeah, and that's all to anticipate, of course, at the beginning of Exodus with uh, Moses placed into a basket, and that is the same word as the Ark of Noah. Uh, as you as you pointed out, Alistair, the, the Ark, of, Ark of the Covenant is a separate word from the one that's referring to. In English, it's the same word. In Hebrew, it's a different term. But the same word that's used for Noah's Ark is used for Moses' basket later on. I want, I want to, sing this, to extend this a little bit into the New Covenant. I'm, I'm not sure how to do it with the, with the time sequences that James was talking about, but we've been talking about measured spaces. The Ark is the first of the measured spaces. But uh, you also have measured and counted people, which I think is a variation of the same idea. So when uh, when Israel comes out of Egypt, we have a whole book that in the English title is called Numbers, and uh, that's because there are two large census at the beginning and end of the book. There are other occasions when there are uh, there's a census of the people, uh, and all of those have the same kind of uh, connotation. If the numbered place, the measured place, is the holy place, the measured time is the holy time, the measured people are the holy people. So already in the Old Testament, you have this idea of a uh, uh, some analogy between the the measured holy space, the physical building, and the people who are also being measured and counted. Uh, of course, that's fulfilled in the New Covenant. The people become the temple, full stop. Uh, and uh, the measured, the, the the numbered people, the 144,000 of Revelation, or the myriads of myriads uh, that are found elsewhere in Revelation, uh, these are a numbered host. And that numbering is an indication that they're the holy people. The holy people, Peter. In, in terms of, um, you were saying, uh, talking about how this might cash out in terms of time. I mean, it seems that we do have some significant things in the New Testament in terms of uh, the reorientation of time in 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 some ways. So, um, obviously, as the um, disciples uh, initially begin to meet they break bread daily in the uh temple and so there is almost this kind of uh charting out of this this daily remembrance in in the breaking of bread um this daily re- remembrance of jesus's death which seems to evolve into a, a more structured weekly um uh weekly event in is it acts 20 um or perhaps 21 uh paul waits until he can meet with the believers when they're going to gather on the first day of the week and um there, there seems to be something about that and you you also get um some unusual phrases in the new testament so um after where am i now um matthew 28 after the sabbath it says um towards the dawn of the first day of the week is kind of an un- unusual way of talking about time um if you are in the mindset of a day beginning at at night time you know and and so it it does it it does seem like there is some reorientation of time within the context of the of the new covenant 
Yeah. And I, I was thinking too, when you brought up that point, James, about, um, you know, there's certain parts of Acts, for example, toward the end of Acts, when Paul is uh, making his way toward Rome, the shipwreck story, there's a very deliberate enumeration of days uh, that are being laid out, uh, connecting it with a variety of things, but uh, among other things, um, probably connecting it to the the story of Noah. We have something like that, at least in uh, uh, some parts of the passion narratives in the Gospels, uh, indications of, uh, as you said, the first day of the week, the dawning of the first day, there's an eighth day, there are eighth day appearances of Jesus later on. So I, the, those are the things that I immediately thought of when you started, when you brought up the uh, the question of measuring time. I want to highlight one other thing that Jim says about the the arc that, um, again, I hadn't remembered this remark, but it was uh, it was helpful. He, first of all, he, ta- he thinks about the ark, I think quite properly, the ark passing through the waters, over the waters as a kind of exodus. If you take exodus in a more abstract sense that you're moving, tra- making a transition from one state into another, then it's you have that kind of exodus movement. You have an, uh, a more literal exodus in the fact that Noah starts out in one place, gets into a boat, goes across the water, and then ends up in a different place. And he passes across and makes a journey. But one of the things that Jim draws from that is that uh, it's an exodus and a kind of wilderness wandering. And that might help to explain how it all works. I mean, you have creation, uh, creationists. Uh, I'm a young earth creationist, but you have creationists who spend a lot of time trying to figure out as it, the um, the Noah's Ark um, model up in uh, Kentucky, they have, they've tried very deliberately to figure out how it was all managed. Is there enough space to store all the food you'd need to keep all these animals alive for a year? What do you do with water supply? How do you get rid of the, the animals' refuse? What's, what, how, how does all this work? But once you put it into the context of exodus and wilderness wanderings, then as Jim points out, you have to account for the possibility of miraculous provisions. Israel didn't go out into the wilderness with 40 years supply of food uh, or water, but the Lord provided for them out in the wilderness with these miraculous offerings. Um, so J- Jim is suggesting that perhaps that kind of that kind of thing was also happening on the ark. I thought that was a, an interesting and helpful way to it's I think it's still a useful exercise to try to think about the mechanics and the and the engineering and the management of uh, of Noah on his ark. But uh, when you introduce the possibility of miracles, that that becomes somewhat less of a less of a uh, uh, less of a problem. Right. You've also, I think, Jim also mentions the possibility of the animals hibernating. Um, which, I mean, who knows? I don't know much about the pre-flood world and and the kind of animals that lived on it. But who knows what a, a massive time of darkness might have prompted animals? You know, perhaps Noah would have taken young animals to do but either way you've then got theologically quite a nice um idea of obviously um a world being kind of put to put to sleep as it were um before it's risen to new life in a in a post-flood um environment which could resonate with obviously adam and uh also jesus and 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 just these general pictures that jim jim has placing the boat into a deep sleep and then opening its side at the end Oh yeah, yeah, very good. And what comes out of the side at the end is a glorified humanity. Um, Noah is a new Adam. He's given the same commission Adam is given. He rules over the animals as Adam ruled over the animals, but in a number of respects, he's he's a, a glorification of Adam. He he's not placed in a garden that God planted, but he plants his own vineyard. 
he's given authority uh, a fear his his fear will be on the animal kingdom he's given authority to uh, uh, carry out uh, executions it seems that this is the first time that man is given was well, certainly the case that the first time man is given explicit permission to eat uh, animal flesh so uh, yeah there's a yeah the very very neat association between uh, uh, the Genesis 2 scene with Adam, uh, the creation of Eve, and the formation of a new humanity following the flood. And there's also a new sort of fall event um, with the planting of the vineyard and then the um, nakedness, the shame, the judgment upon three persons, or the blessing upon two in this case, and then being moving out. Um, and so it seems that there is a call back in that move forward. Right. And and this, if I understand the chapter and previous chapters rightly, is um, a large part of what Jim is wanting to do. So he's charting out these different world models, which are kind of orbed around certain things. So one orbed around um, Noah's Ark, for instance, um, both during the flood and then as it is set on top of era and kind of new life coming down from that and he likens that to eden and and so there is a sense in which these worlds are passing away but there is also then a, a sense of continuity between each um age and it seems that um for jim noah's world and let's say the ark isn't just uh done and now in the past but certain facets of it are going to then reappear in other um structures and i haven't quite sort of put it all uh together but this this seems to then feed into the sense of uh, progression and trajectory that that jim wants to develop here yeah and i think that one of the things that i think he does well in these chapters especially in these chapters where the the text is fairly brief and uh, and uh, doesn't give a lot of details about certain things is to try to tease out kind of the geopolitic geopolitics of the period following the flood. And then he, he kind of infers uh, what's happening prior to the flood. There's not a lot of evidence going, but you're, he's, he's trying to uh, think about, again, looking at the characteristic features of each of these covenant orders, each of these worlds, each heaven and earth that God sets up. He's looking at the features, the, the religious features, uh, what, kind of, uh, what kind of worship is being conducted. Is there a sanctuary? In the world of Noah, there is no sanctuary. Uh, Noah plants his vineyard, but that's not the same as the Garden of God. There's not going to be a, a Garden of God with God dwelling in it, as there was with Eden until the tabernacle. Uh, so you go from the flood until the tabernacle before you get that kind of reconstituted garden. But then think about the, uh, Jim speculates on the the political situation. You have a list of seventy, uh, roughly seventy nations in Genesis ten. This is immediately following the flood narrative. Uh, you have uh, peoples diversifying. Uh, you have um, hints from mostly from later in uh, in the Bible, but hints that these are governed by priest kings like Melchizedek or Jethro. That there are uh, post Noahic uh, priest kings, some of whom are worshippers of the true God, as they spread out from Noah. Noah is the the reoriginating family of humanity. And as uh, different nations spread out from Noah and his sons, then they have some continuity and some contact uh, with uh, a past of faithful worship of God, which is uh, goes back to Noah. 
And so you have this, you have this kind of geopolitical and religious situation that he teases out. And it, it just gives a helps to give a much more grounded and realistic picture of the world at the time instead of instead of putting it into a kind of Sunday school spiritual category. We're trying to think about what how the world was put together and what kind of authority was exercised and how people worshiped and uh, and there are hints Jim uh, can't be dogmatic about any of it but there are hints that suggest certain certain features of the of the world right as a as a example of that kind of thing I um I I was kind of um 50 50 or, or just not particularly convinced in previous chapters at this idea that the um that Eden was located at a, a kind of origin point of the way in which the four rivers are uh, um, pointing towards and that this was in the north and somewhere around Turkey or, or, or that sort of area. Um, that struck me as, as possibly right, who, who knows. But then Jim mentions here on uh, where are we, page 174, he says the new high ground in Noah's um, world, the holy mountain, is Ararat. And he says, as we've seen this is probably the same location as uh, Eden, humanity will proceed from Ararat just as they proceeded from uh, Eden. And he then talks about kind of other um, parallels, the way in which God's house is going to resting on top of the mountain is is like Mount Moriah. But that's just one of these things that I find very uh, interesting, the the way in which you can kind of be slightly sceptical of an idea, but the more extra things like this that I see, the the more weight I, I think I'm going to give it. Insights like this strike me as very interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to reflect on what it is that that's uh, pushing you along toward being persuaded of that. It's the, You're recognizing the symmetry that uh, exists, and the symmetry would exist even if he's not correct about the location of Eden, because you'd still have a high place, you'd still have humanity beginning on a high place, humanity re-beginning on a high place. Uh, But that's just to say that they're in the same region of the world is just another very plausible feature of that, of that symmetry. But I think that that's uh, that kind of argument or that kind of uh, that's not going to be persuasive to everyone, I guess. Uh, And that's part of, part of what Jim is up to in the book is trying to teach us to, to read in a way so that those kind of uh, those kind of connections and analogies and the symmetry of the Bible has its own kind of persuasive force. Uh, things fit together, and once you see how they fit together, then well, they must fit together because it, it's so clean that that there must be something to that. Yeah, and and this is a large part of the way in which we navigate uh, our way around our own world, isn't it? I mean, scientists will often make discover discoveries on the basis of similarities that they see, similar patterns um, that they see in similar structures, let's say, or we will discern people's motives on the basis of similar patterns. If someone sort of does something once, it it might be uh, an accident. If they do it twice, it might be bad luck. But, you know, sooner or later, we start kind of being able to recognise patterns. It it seems sensible to navigate our way around scripture in the same way. Yeah, I think that's right. So I, I think that's exactly right, that our kind of everyday navigation of the world is a rational way to rational way to operate and <laughs> recognizing patterns and similarities and anticipating things and being delighted by the similarities and the the symmetries that we and the harmonies that we discover in the world. As you say, James, I think that's a huge uh, factor for scientific investigation. Uh, it's not the way that 
science is popularly understood. Science is not understood as a kind of as having an aesthetic element like that. But I think that that's actually how scientists work. You, you, you listen to them talk about discovery, and the discovery is often almost an ecstatic moment when they see the beauty of how 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 different things click into place suddenly. And I think that that's uh, that similarity between kind of everyday rationality and what we bring to the biblical text. Uh, I think that in some ways it bumps up against the way that theology is sometimes done as a kind of uh, deductive system from certain kinds of axioms, and you have to have a logical train of argument all the way through. And any kind of leap over the argument, any any kind of leap to seeing simil- similarities at a distance, is uh, is prohibited. It violates the method. But I think uh, that kind of logical deductive method has its place and its uses. It's not the way the Bible's put together, and as you say, James, that's that's not the way we normally normally live. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to highlight too is the the fact I've already pointed this out, but I think it's it's worth repeating and highlighting as a hermeneutical principle that uh, Noah is a new Adam. Everybody who reads Genesis eight and nine recognizes that he's doing things that that Adam had done. He's given commands and promises and a commission like the one that Adam had been given. The beginning of Genesis eight uh, very systematically runs through the creation sequence from Genesis one. It's a it's definitely a new creation sequence. You have a watery world, and eventually that watery world is uh, restored to the three-decker universe that comes at the end of the creation account. But I think the the thing that I want to highlight is the fact that Noah is not just a repeat, but is an elevated and glorified Adam. He's given some of the same uh, commission, the same kind of task in the world, but in a number of ways, he's beyond Adam. He's doing things that Adam had never achieved. Uh, he is advancing to uh, a glorified status as a new and greater Adam. And I, that's going to be going on all the way through the Bible, that um, as there's a new Adam figure at the beginning of each covenant or in the midst of each covenant order, those uh, bring out some new facet of humani- humanity, some new achievement of humanity, some new glory of humanity. And it's that movement from Adam to another Adam, that cumulative movement, that leads up to the coming of the last Adam. The last Adam is not just the, the last one in a series of isolated individual atoms. The last Adam is the culmination of all the atoms that came before. Uh, Irenaeus um, used the analogy of a, a mosaic of a, a mosaic portrait of a king. The Old Testament is the are the pieces of the mosaic, and you put the pieces into place, and then when all the pieces are in place, then you see the portrait of a beautiful king. But you have to have all the pieces there, and it's a it's the cumulative effect of putting the pieces in place that uh, gives you the portrait of the great King Jesus, and that that dynamic is really important for understanding uh, how the world works. That it's it's not just a matter of not just a matter of finding isolated types of Jesus. You have to put those types into into motion and um, and move it along to uh, the culminate in, in Jesus. And then, and then when, we, when we begin to do that, then we can see the entire Bible and, and see Jesus also through new eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.